0: It's actually impressive that Elon has managed to infuriate both mainstream and independent journalists.
1: <laughs> Why did Twitter recently appear to censor Substack content? What was revealed in the open source algorithms that Twitter recently published? And what does a truly free and open social media look like? Today I sit down with Bill Ottman, co-founder of the Mind Social Media Platform, to discuss a radical new vision for internet privacy and decentralization. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Bill Otman, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me.: Bill, you're the founder of a network that mines, of course, that is looking to basically completely decentralize the social media experience. And uh, so what, what, tell me this, okay? Twitter recently open sourced at least part of its algorithm. So what's the significance of that?
0: Yeah, I think that it's a positive step in the right direction. They have published a piece of their recommendation algorithm. There's a couple other components of Twitter that they've open sourced. Open sourcing is what we've been pushing for over a decade. If anyone who doesn't know what that is, that means that the software is actually published, so it's auditable, can be inspected. You can make sure, theoretically, that you know there's not shadow banning or there's not um, bias or there's not security issues. And the, the rationale for companies keeping their software secret is always just based in this irrational fear that someone is going to steal your idea or steal your code. And to be honest, the, the, the likelihood is that no one's going to care less about your code. You should be, and we are, flattered when people take our code. We want people to take our code because that's spreading our technology. And you can actually build a hugely successful enterprise business with open source. I mean, you have, I I could just name the companies for days. You have um, Mongo database, WordPress. WordPress powers 30% of the websites on the entire internet and they're fully open source. Um, And that is something that is only going to keep expanding. What was formerly Birdwatch, now Community Notes, is also an open source component of Twitter, which has honestly, I think, been one of their more successful products. It's, it's really interesting to see you know, the fact checking of, you know, even you'll see Biden getting fact checked, even Elon gets fact checked on his own posts and, and all that infrastructure is out there. So it's a big step in the right direction.
1: And I, I, I like how it's called community notes, right? Not fact-checking, because fact-checking has definitely got a, a, a very bad name now, mm-hmm. because it's not really fact-checking, right, typically. What,
0: well, it wasn't yeah, yeah. when the way that it was being done on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube was a handful of think tanks behind the scenes you know, arbitrarily applying labels whenever they feel like it. The way that community notes is set up, which is actually similar, we have a jury system on Minds for our whole appeals process—a community jury. Uh, it's 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 similar in that sense, where it's it's not um, it's it's not limited to just a, a small handful of organizations. It's actually the community is participating.
1: So, Elon Musk did release some significant portion of the algorithm, but it's not. I think we were talking offline. It's not actually. The algorithm, you said, so explain this to me.
0: Yeah, so on GitHub, which is where people create software, um, the GitHub repo, it's called, you know, github.com slash the algorithm. That's what they labeled it, sort of in this cute branding, uh, branding way. And everyone was so excited about it. People are analyzing it, commenting, you know, even opening merge requests for changes, that's kind of how GitHub works. It's basically you have like a a branch, a master branch and then people can fork the code, make a little change and then request it gets merged back in with the main branch. That's kind of versioning software. And unfortunately we realized when Substack links got limited that over here on the source code for the algorithm, nothing about Substack was updated when that happened. So we now know that it's not the production code. So it's an algorithm, but it's not the algorithm that is running live from what we can tell, because none of the substack changes were were referenced. Elon says that the whole purpose of what he's doing is for maximum public trust. You know, you have to be transparent with the algorithm because otherwise society can't trust this as the town square, which totally makes sense. But again, then publish the thing that you are actually running. I
1: want to touch on this in a moment, just explain what that means in a little more detail. But before I go there, you know, there there is code in there that basically, as far as I can tell, makes it so that people who are, for example, blocked repeatedly by others and so forth, uh, that that actually downgrades their ability for their content to be seen. As I was looking through this, it struck me there's a whole Realm of possible weaponization, which can be used here, and I became of blo- became aware of block lists, and mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe you can kind of just tell me about sure. this whole thing.
0: Yeah. So block li- the more you're blocked, um, the more you're reported, which can you know be manipulated by mobs. There's a whole block list that people can subscribe to. Someone could create a whole bot army to just go and block somebody, and then you know, based on one person creating a. a a bot army that blocks one user, suddenly their reach is destroyed. Um, and then additionally, um, there's ratio of followers to uh, who you're following matters. So you know, say you have 100,000 followers, but you're following 100,000 people. Well that's bad according to the algorithm. They don't want you to have a high um, number of people that you're following because that's bot behavior. So, you know, even we had our team uh, talking about it, they're like, should we start unfollowing people so that we can kind of get favored? And it messes with your head. Right, exactly. There's a kind of behavioral modification
1: element. I remember a little while ago, um, all the people started, were asking questions. Like there became this thing where everyone on Twitter is constantly asking questions, some of which seem very gratuitous or, you know, not particularly necessary. I guess people discovered that asking questions leads to more engagement in their accounts, more following. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, So explain to me what you mean by if this is not the code and how the Substack piece fits into it.
0: Right. So there's clearly some sort of blacklist somewhere in the Twitter infrastructure, which is a whole list of probably legitimate spam URLs that should be punished. But what happened uh, the other last week is that links to Substack, you could no longer engage with them. So you couldn't share, like, um, the whole API integration between Substack and Twitter was was broken, so all the Twitter embeds on Substack articles were all broken. And the, the sort of speculation for what's happening, and Elon alluded to this in one post, where he said that Substack is trying to download all our data and create their own social network, and so we needed to block them. So Substack is a venture-backed, Tech company um, Andreessen Horowitz, I'm pretty sure, is a major investor. Mark Andreessen, you know, kind of uh, legendary technologist and investor, also invested in the Twitter acquisition, in a big way, like I think over a hundred million dollars. And Elon has also alluded to being interested in potentially buying Substack. You know, it's this uh, great place for independent journalist blogs. And he's been doing all this stuff with the Twitter files. I'm sure that he and Mark have been having conversations about it. Anyway, doing their negotiations, who knows um, how much Substack is worth. But the speculation is saying that Elon blocked Substack for for sort of a um, reality check for them to understand how much they are actually reliant on Twitter and their APIs in an attempt to potentially negotiate the valuation. Now, this obviously had major blowback effects. He essentially censored all of the Twitter files journalists that he's been um, working with, Taibbi, uh, Schellenberger. They all run Substacks, um, uh, even for their, their main websites. I think the Free Press, Barry Weiss's group, uh, also uses Substack for their, for their back end infrastructure. And so this, it's actually impressive that Elon has managed to infuriate both mainstream and independent journalists. <laughs> <laughs> at this point. And again, I sort of say this with uh, uh, the caveat that obviously Elon has brought Twitter to a much better place than it was pre-acquisition. So you know, ultimately, I'm, uh, I'm an Elon fan and I'm rooting for him. But some of these behaviors seem sort of impulsive. And you know, I would love to be able to talk with him and, and help him work through some of the issues.
1: Well, you have a pretty specific philosophy. Around you know you know it, Minds is a pretty small network. Epoch Times, so everyone knows, is on Mind. But there's a whole kind of vision behind it. Like you're building something that you believe is very important. I I agree. Actually, I think can be very important. But why don't you t- tell me about that?
0: Yeah. So we've over six million users now. Um, the evolution of social media now is going to be much more difficult than it was in the early days but also because we're not willing to use a lot of the surveillance tactics and sort of gr- what are called growth hacking, sort of other people call it dark growth hacking mechanisms, like reaching into people's contact books and all of these uh, manipulation measures to grow, we're not willing to do that, which is what they leaned on for their whole growth wave. And so, so the whole analytics industry, um, you know, customer acquisition, data, industry. it's its all a total mess. I mean, it's just, a, it's a data brokering world and people are buying information from each other and, and it, it's really something that we've rejected. But where we are trying to take things is to not have our creators be reliant on us. So that's where these decentralized and open source protocols come in. One notable that we've integrated with is called Noster, which, um, stands for Notes and Other Stuff Transmitted by Relay. And it's a uh, cryptographic relay network where essentially, and this is all happening in the background, I know people's eyes may glaze over (laughs) hearing hearing some of those words, but what's happening is that you have a a crypto key pair in the background of your account, and every time you post or follow somebody, your key is signing those events. And so what that means is you and only you control your private key. This is the same with cryptocurrencies as it is with cryptography and encrypted messenger services. There's a public key and a private key. So that data is stored on this relay network, meaning that you can take your private key that you get on Mines and you can actually leave Mines, go to another app on Noster, there's dozens of them that are social media interfaces, and you can upload your key and your content is there, your followers are there, and so your identity is yours. You know, the issue right now is that on YouTube, Twitter, you know, kind of Web 2.0, juggernauts, you get banned and your stuff is stuck there. Everything that you work a decade on is, is ripped from you. And so the paradigm is that the creator owns their identity, their content, and their social graph. Hmm. So Snowden is, is on Noster now. Dorsey's taken a liking to it. I think he's repenting for his, his Twitter days. He's, he's become sort of a, a Bitcoiner and a decentralization um, guy. And this new ecosystem is, is over you know, millions of users. The way that we're interfacing with the Nuster Protocol is the same way that Twitter could, in the same way that Rumble could, or the same way that any centralized app can. Because just because you're running on servers doesn't mean that you can't participate in this new decentralized internet. And I, I think the momentum is, is totally unstoppable because at the, at the end of the day, it creates a more resilient network that can't get taken down. It's censorship resistant. It actually takes liability away from the platform because the content is unleashed on, on the world. It's like torrents. I mean, torrents have been around for decades. And we, we all know what they did with the music industry.
1: Something that just strikes me, we're talking about Substack, you know, by Elon doing this, uh, you know, limiting of Sunstacks, Substack, some people call it censorship of Sunstack. In mm-hmm. fact, it is a kind of censorship, isn't it?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, he also kind of maybe inadvertently demonstrate, or maybe advertently, demonstrated the power of a centralized network to basically instantly turn off a whole a bit, frankly, almost a business for someone potentially if Twitter is so important. So maybe that's what he wanted to show. But he also pr- reminded everybody else that that power does exist. And maybe that's not the best thing. It
0: certainly exposed both of those facts. Um, I think that he probably was caught up in whatever negotiation they have going on and didn't. Uh, you can't just play with people's livelihoods like that, in my opinion. I mean, that, that's the same behavior that a decade ago when Facebook started really restricting their algorithm caused dozens of businesses to go bankrupt because you know, one day they're getting 1,000 likes on every post, the next day they're getting 10 just because Facebook decided that they're going to make some tweaks. Suddenly now all these people are out of jobs and have lost their business. Now, granted, does Facebook have the legal right to do that? Probably, Um, but that doesn't mean that you do it just because you can do it. And so I think that with this whole Substack fiasco, you know, I have faith that he could probably admit he was wrong.
1: Well, and this throttling, you know, for us, for example, for Epoch Times, is not academic at all. I mean, that's we spent years developing our Facebook presence, only to have to, you know, very aggressively uh, pivot to the subscription, independent subscription model when said throttling happened. Pretty much exactly how you described, it, probably even greater order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay.
0: Well, subscription businesses are absolutely the future we have Minds Plus on Minds. We enable creators to set up their own memberships. We have that functionality. I mean, being reliant on the surveillance advertising economy is just a a bad decision for any site. You know, thinking of advertising, advertising is always going to be relevant, but typically it should be thought of as like a, a secondary revenue stream as opposed to primary, because when it becomes primary, you are just dependent on the whims of corporations that are not your own corporations. So that's not really ideal.
1: How did this all come to be that you became so interested in creating a you know, completely open source, decentralized system for people to do social media in?
0: I just always thought that it was inevitable that an open source system would take over social media. And in, because we've seen historical precedent for that with other technologies. So for instance, with Linux, which is like the most famous open source operating system that is powering majority of the infrastructure of the world. Because it used to be that all software was just free. Software licenses weren't, didn't even really exist. It was just the, the academics were all sharing software. And then this whole proprietary software, intellectual property, um, Mode of operating came into play and th- with Windows and everything started getting locked down. Um, but again, we've seen these instances, whether it's Linux, whether it's Wikipedia, and I'll be the first to say that Wikipedia has many problems with regards to the editing and the administration and some of the censorship that occurs on there, even on our page, it's you know there's these these trolls, and I know many others have had similar experiences. However, Wikipedia was revolutionary in what it did. It's fully open source. All the software and the content is Creative Commons, meaning that it can be shared freely with attribution. And Encarta, Encyclopedia Britannica, all of these institutions are gone. I mean, no one uses them. You know, because if you're going to—Wikipedia it's, it's again, not the most reliable necessarily, but it changed the world. It is the go-to spot to get the basic facts now. And it beat out all of the proprietary corporations that were trying to dominate the encyclopedia world. You know, you see what's going on with Bitcoin in relation to the traditional finance world. Bitcoin is a fully open source and transparent system that is just organically happening. And it's happening because it's open and transparent and it's accessible for people. So the idea that it would happen in social media makes sense. And it is happening. Um, there's, you know, it's not just us who have, who have taken on this philosophy. So I just think of the, the inevitability with tech, technology systems. I, I think that most industries are gonna move to open source.
1: So, you know, at this point, right? You know, the reason, for example, we Became interested in mines in the first place is because um, we were seeing all these other systems getting locked down, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and so forth, YouTube, and so we we're, you know, basically looking to go anywhere where there's a philosophy of openness and no censorship and and so forth. So, but then Elon came, it created maybe created competition again. What is the case for someone to join a platform where there isn't? you know, a, a ton of people engaging with you.
0: We actually find that smaller to medium-sized creators have an easier time getting engagement on Mines than on Twitter and Facebook. So I know you're using the uh, the Twitter mirror function because you have a big Twitter following, um, but if, I would argue that if you were kind of going hard, full-bore native on Mines, you would, you would probably see different results than maybe you've seen so far, so because we have a mechanism first of all we don't have restrictive algorithms so it's much easier to get into the recommendation feed and we also have a whole reward system which where you can earn more reach based on the contributions that you make so you can earn these tokens and then t- tokens are worth views so you can use the tokens that you earn to boost your posts for more views this is the inverse of how most other networks are operating where they're pushing you down and we're trying to Bring people up and share revenue with creators and give, and, and give more reach. So, but to what you're saying about the dynamic with competition with, with Twitter, I, I, I relate it to almost what happened when Obama got elected. You know, when Obama got elected, I feel like everybody was super happy, hopeful, and it created this apathy, where you know you kind of have the, the figurehead that looks good and feels like change, feels like progress, but then it's a little bit emptier than you would have hoped. And you know, with Elon, I would say th- there is change happening that is positive. However, you know, with, the, with letting people back on, for instance, he seems to be playing favorites. Like Not everybody has been let back on, back on Twitter. I mean, there are probably thousands, maybe even millions of accounts that got banned during COVID of non-high profile random people who were just sharing a study and got banned and you know they're not prioritized in terms of being uh, reinstated. So, you know, we're going to keep holding his feet to the fire and I think that he will be more willing to change and he's already proven this than Facebook, Google, Apple. Um, you know, the, the thing that I love about Elon is his willingness to have the conversation in the open and also he's he's shattered Barriers for just how the elite converse with the public. I mean, he acts like a normal person. He posts memes. He, you know, plays around. He's a goofball. That in itself is a total game changer. Because, you know, traditionally it's always been that the billionaires are, you know, they shield their personality. You know, they don't really act like themselves to the public. But he's sort of changed that. So I I, I absolutely appreciate that. I think that there's major advances in in discourse that have happened. And we just got to keep moving in the right direction.
1: Well, and you know, this shattering that you're describing, uh, I think it also extends through to the Twitter files. And there's, of course, a lot of criticisms of the Twitter files, including on um, about the fact that it's not nearly everything or it's very piecemeal. So nonetheless, Clearly, there's been some unbelievable uh, realities exposed, right? For you, you know, this this question of censorship is is obviously central. On the one hand, there's a whole kind of ideology these days that censorship is actually kind of a good thing and necessary because it might lead to you know radicalization and uh, violence, right? But on the other hand. We're also seeing these the Twitter files exposures, telling us that uh, you know, I guess, some really bad decisions are being made. And when there's no light of day, then people can just keep doing that with zero accountability, right? So I don't know. I, I, it's it's hard to square all of this, right?
0: Yeah, I think that both realities are are true to a degree. So it is true that and possible that disinformation can run wild on social media and cause um, cause negative things to occur. Um, it has happened in isolated instances, but you have to compare that with the devastating impact of, of censorship itself. So, um, you know, we wrote a whole paper with a team of PhDs and Daryl Davis on Bringing together the peer-reviewed research on this debate and showing both sides, and it's it's overwhelmingly true that censorship facilitates greater isolation, greater radicalization. Because I mean, all right. So let's do a thought experiment. You are, you know, John Smith, posting, you know, during the pandemic, posting a study about COVID, and. you know you've imagine you've been on Twitter for ten years and you're gone. How does that make you feel?
1: <laughs> uh, s- sad, angry, potentially militant.
0: do you yeah. do you suddenly think that that study that you posted is fake?
1: No, of course not. Of course not you're <laughs> right. indignant. you're, you're indignant, indignant. You're, yeah. yes, you do, yeah. you're,
0: you're reinforced. I mean, there's a uh, one example that that we get into. And I, I'm not blaming YouTube for this, but there was one example of this woman that they banned. Um, I think she was like a Middle Eastern kind of dance creator. And she showed up at YouTube headquarters and shot two people. Anthony Cassili uh, is a, uh, a European censorship researcher. He has um, correlated violent protests with censorship. Um, you know, he's talked about the toothpaste tube effect, where he studied this one uh, Tumblr community that was like this pro anorexia community. Odd, but it exists. There's all kinds of you know strange places. And so Twitter t- tried to you know get rid of it because it was really nasty stuff. But you know people just are going to go somewhere else to talk about it. Just because you censor people doesn't mean that they stop being interested <laughs> in in what they're discussing. And and in fact. You know, even looking at all the school shooters, it's like isolation is depression. It's, they're, they're essentially synonymous. So you know, the, the psychological impact of censorship is just devastating. We just saw it on a scale that has never been seen before. Through the Twitter files and frankly
1: some other yeah. disclosures that we've seen in some lawsuits like Missouri versus Biden and so forth. So one of the things I found really fascinating in the censorship effect report, which you wrote, which really, frankly, is very eye opening, I want to recommend that that people take a look at it and and its conclusions. The word radicalization has become a pejorative. But in this report, you outlined actually radicalization isn't positive or negative. It's just a, something that happens so explain this to me
0: yeah um you know it obviously can and is colloquially used as a pejorative and i think probably for the most part it is um but to with a lot of these policies um it there's no room for sort of positive radicalization or positive extremism?
1: I'll use, I'm going to jump in. Okay. Okay. There's my, my friend, Bob Woodson uses a term radical grace. When he talks radical grace is when someone forgives, for example, I have a, you know, there's a, there's a story in our American Essence magazine recently about a woman who was a lawyer and the, under the Ceausescu regime in Romania, very, too, too successful. A hitman was sent to, to kill her. And she talked him down. Basically, and he ended up, you know, becoming a Christian. She forgave him for what he was doing, right? Right. So, anyway, radical grace. Yeah, absolutely. Right? We actually mentioned yeah.
0: that type of field in the paper: radical forgiveness, radical love. Um, you know, there there are instances of, you know, mothers whose son was murdered, and then they see the um, the killer in court. And then decide in that moment to forgive them, or they go visit them in jail in the years following, and the catharsis and and healing that's able to occur through that—like it's counterintuitive, but it's actually, you know, arguably one of the most effective mechanisms to to healing. And that's very much the approach that Daryl Davis has taken in his de-radicalization work. For anyone who doesn't know, he's a uh, famous black musician and um, race relations expert who has befriended hundreds of members of the KKK and inspired them to leave. And just, just oh, weird. By being kind and human to people, you can, you know, that um, is more likely to change their minds than shaming them. This is, like, you know, some of this stuff from a human Perspective is very obvious. Like, be nice to people if you want to have any chance at influencing them. Don't, you know, shame them for being hateful.
1: But, it's, but basically, radicalization is just feeling very, very strongly about something, right? Right. I mean, ultimately.
0: Yeah, and you need that. You need to have access to radical ideas in order to stretch yourself for humanity to stretch itself in the fringe areas, the lawful fringe areas, you know, that the first amendment protects, that is where you're gonna see, yeah, sure, all, all types of crazy stuff that is nonsense, but also a decent amount of, you know, the most uh, breakthrough ideas. So um, this paradigm of social media apps just banning all of that, and if it has anything to do with this topic, it's just gone. I mean, the, the, the global impact that that's having on our brains is, is devastating. It's in, in, in terms of the chilling effect on, on how we communicate publicly. And, you know, everybody's basically putting on a front in when we have to, to protect ourselves, because you're not gonna risk the following that you've developed over a decade that is, Directly correlated to your livelihood and ability to influence the world. Well, you know, uh, Martin Kulldorff, the the former Harvard uh, professor of epidemiology,
1: um, we we've discussed about how you know both both he and I have used. You've been advised by people who are from former communist countries to basically so you don't lose your let's say Twitter presence or Facebook or whatever presence, right? You kind of apply self-censorship methods to to kind of push it to the limit, but not go over the go over the edge. And this is what you know basically dissidents in these societies would do, right? right to try to but but, but then of course you know this is probably good advice in a sense. But on the other side, re, uh, exposing this terrible terrible reality that somehow our system's a bit like that now. Mm-hmm. Wow! And then the other piece I'll just mention is that it's not it's not all radical ideas. That are censored. Some of them are like propped up too. So it's not, it's <laughs> That's not. That's the double standard. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it, so, one of the major kind of backlashes against Twitter censorship pre Elon acquisition was when, um, you know, their, their dead naming policy for trans individuals, you know, in, which is actually still in their terms. They haven't rescinded those terms. They did rescind the COVID misinformation terms. But the dead naming stuff which Megan Murphy got banned for you know saying a man is not a woman and famously getting banned for saying that um you know the that's the double standard is that you know or or you know the these protests are okay these are loving protests these are hateful protests (laughs) it's the same double standard of of what is enabled like they, they they should just all be allowed and um let people curate their own their own experience. You, you would think that from a business perspective that having maximum access to a customer base on both the right and the left would be good for business. You would think. Um, and I, I do think that that's true. And that somehow this sort of cartel of advertisers have have peer pressured oh, the, the companies to Create these content policies because I, I I would imagine that they know that half as many potential users is worse than twice as many. So, um, but it shows you how strong the ideology has taken hold, that they're willing to sacrifice those customers.
1: And I just I'm reminded at this moment that you're actually I think as we speak you know, entering into a lawsuit against this censorship law in California, which is kind of, I don't know, it's like begging to be challenged under the First Amendment. Tell me about it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So AB 587 is a new law in California that went into effect in January, spearheaded by by Gavin Newsom and the Attorney General. And It essentially mandates social media companies to uh, report on a biannual basis all different kinds of analytics about their moderation and to have specific content policies about a specific group of topics, which are disinformation, misinformation, hate speech, and then, as you mentioned, radicalization and extremism. None of these terms are defined. And those are the only ones that they're mandating. For instance, they're not mandating you know, child abuse material policies. Now, they might argue that, okay, that's, al- that, that's already against the law, but I think that it still gives you a sense of where their priorities lie. They're only mandating policies, specific policies around topics that are lawful under the First Amendment. None of those words that I just mentioned, first of all, they don't define them, so we don't even know what they mean, but none of those are inherently unlawful. Like misinformation, if someone posts uh, you know, about some aloe cure for you know, whatever it is, Like some, one person's going to call that misinformation, another's not. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's not illegal to be wrong. It's not illegal to be stupid. With extremism and radicalization, I mean, radicalization, you know, it's a radical what, or an extreme what. They in themselves are just qualifiers. Well, they're adjectives. As
1: you, as you mentioned from uh, from in in the report, and also you know, Jacob Siegel mentions in his amazing kind of new, new piece about the hoax of the century, is it actually originally stems from you know, information warfare techniques designed to deal with the war on terror. That's what the radicalization implies when that term is used, designed. Right.
0: And I actually want to touch right. on the, the Restrict Act, which is sort of yeah. Patriot Act 2.0, which is related to this, but just to, to close the thread on the lawsuit. So with uh, James Lawrence, um, who led the effort, he was Alex Berenson's attorney, to you know famously uh, get Alex reinstated on Twitter after they had banned him for for COVID. Content. Um, we are suing the state of, of, of California to get this um, overturned, and um, Tim Pool is joining. Babylon Bee is joining, and you know we're hopeful. So tell me
1: about the restrict act, then.
0: Everyone's been hearing, you know, TikTok uh, surveillance. We need to ban TikTok in in the U.S. Which TikTok is a very problematic application that is a surveillance nightmare. It is um, clearly, you know, sending information to China that is a national security threat, probably legitimately. And And
1: a tool of influence, I have to add, right? A massive ability to influence. If you look at Dr. Robert Epstein's work on other, that I'm familiar with on other social
0: media apps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that sentiment, people wanting to do something about TikTok is totally well founded, I would say. Um, but the Restrict Act, you know, famously Jesse Waters confronted Lindsey Graham on this. Uh, you know, Lindsey Graham, who was one of the primary advocates in Congress, didn't even know what was in the act. He didn't know that it was a, um, a censorship nightmare of a piece of legislation that essentially would f- uh, fine people in the U.S. for using VPNs. And so it's just such a great example of, you know, the hijacking of of a good cause. You know, some some more sensible legislation if you would be an encrypt act where you're actually protecting citizens, teaching them, um, you know, mandating end to end encryption throughout the government um, and then educating people about the dangers of surveillance applications in the app stores. Regulation in this realm is so risky. So it has to be very sensitively crafted but what you could do is in the app stores label apps that are um, surveillance based and or, or are funneling data to different territories around the world in the same way that twitter is labeling media companies now you could label apps in the app store for you know what's going on with them are they open source are they, you know, privacy preserving? These, these are, you could create little icons. You know, we, we saw it with the organic food. We can use mechanisms like that to educate people and sort of push back on TikTok. But I was, uh, I was joking with a friend that the Restrict Act could be one of the rare pieces of legislation where the left and the right come together because you're getting all the TikTok people who are clearly going to be against banning TikTok. And then you're going to get all the privacy and freedom people who don't want the Restrict Act. So you could, you could end up having the left and the right, ironically, both be arguing to um, to bring down the Restrict Act. <laughs> to
1: me, it's a hugely intractable problem that TikTok... I, 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 in other words, I don't, I don't know the answer, but um, when you have... A total totalitarian societies, or at least authoritarian societies, taking advantage of genuinely open societies, uh, the the rules in these societies to you know push their agendas massively, and you know we seem to be unable to kind of deal with that, both the information gathering and the influence operation, you know that that TikTok, invariably is, um, without basically going against our values?
0: How do you deal with that? Right. I just think we need consistent standards because we also don't know, you know with all the other apps in the App Store, you know, a large majority of them which have similar surveillance mechanisms in them, you know, the, the, those companies might be US-based, Facebook, Google. But we also don't know what Facebook and Google are doing with their data behind the scenes. Correct. So Facebook could, theory, could be selling that data to anybody so could Google. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when uh, the TikTok CEO was uh, testifying the other day, he said actually the same thing. He was like, can we just have consistent, you know, I'm not defending necessarily him at all, but it is true that we we can't think of TikTok in a vacuum. You can't think that just because Facebook is based in the U.S. that we don't need to um, address that elephant in the room just as much. In fact, it could be more nefarious because, you know, we think that, you know, they're US so that they, they would never betray our interests. But the the likely reality is that they are betraying our interests.
1: Well, we've, okay, so let's let's talk about that briefly. Okay, so there, we've seen the social dilemma. I mean, I know you've seen this film, it shows us how much how deeply these social media networks understand us, and how they, you know, Develop technology that's addictive that gets us using it more. And of course, you know, TikTok is this, all this stuff on steroids. The difference is that it's in the hands of a regime that seeks to subvert America and has zero, zero guardrails, right, of any sort. It's a regime that has, you know, a multi billion dollar forced organ harvesting industry that, that's committing at least one that everyone agrees on genocide. Right. So, in in the, so a tool like this in the hands of the Chinese military, that's different than Facebook, in my view. Right. It's not, they, I don't think we can create an equivalency. I would there. agree. I think it's a special yeah. cat. I think it, I actually think it's legitimately a special category. Although, I'm deeply afraid of what, where to, uh, Facebook might be selling its data mm. to. Yeah. Right. And
0: I, but I, I think that this conversation generally, you know, wondering about, the surveillance, national security risks of the apps that we store in our pockets. You know, this is the opportunity to have that conversation holistically. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, TikTok and other you know um, authoritarian-sponsored apps are their own category, but we need to have the whole conversation because all are a threat.
1: 100%. Well, and I guess I guess this is where, you know, Minds is supposed to give us an alternative. But how do we so, you know, here's here's the opportunity for you to tell us how is Minds different? How can you not put your finger on the scale as Elon did with Substack, for example, or, you know, never mind all the what and all these other networks and especially TikTok
0: would be doing. Sure. So as a We can, and the reason we're integrating with NOSTER and other decentralized protocols is because we know, we want to protect ourselves from ourselves because we know what could happen to us down the line. You know, Twitter back in the day acted, you know, their slogan was free speech wing of the free speech party. They all thought that they were probably fighting for free speech in their early origins. And so by integrating with sovereign, censorship resistant protocols, you're basically protecting your user base and giving them an escape hatch. You're saying you can take your stuff with you at any point in time. And that what that does is in terms of the power dynamic, it, it keeps us on a level playing field because when we know that our users could just take their key and go to another app, we're gonna respect their freedom because we know that they could do that. The problem on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook is that they, you're, they have everybody locked in. So it's, not, it's, it's non-trivial to move your whole following to another app. It actually takes a decade to do. So um, I'm hoping that we can get more large networks to adopt these protocols, which from a user perspective, they shouldn't even really feel anything different. It all feels the same, but in your settings, you would just have an option, oh, I can go download, download my key. And then that means that if Twitter ever messes with me, I can just go over here.
1: And this can be, you know, huge amounts of data, like imagine you're a very active user, you've got video, you've got all sorts of stuff. So your key is, where, where does this thing even live, you know, if you've got, you know, however many gigabytes
0: or even terabytes of video? So for right now, there is a torrent integration with Noster happening. Um, so video and more heavy-duty media is coming. Right now, it's mostly supporting just like text and links. And so that data lives on the relay network. So anybody can run a relay node on their machine. And so that's where it lives. It lives in sort of this decentralized network. And then you have your key, which sort of gives you the ability to access and write to that identity well and
1: what's very interesting and of course so this brings a couple of thoughts right one is you're building something step by step without some kind of you know massive funding you know kind of driving everything behind you at least that's the sense i get and it actually it depends on user participation and all the people that buy into mines are the people that are effectively hosting right all of this material yeah. right And so that's it's 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 very interesting and I think compelling and it's of course it's it's a work uh, a continual work in progress right? Yeah, Yeah. we're
0: also going to be um, so our our original funding round was uh, uh, crowdfunding equity crowdfunding which was made possible through the Jobs Act about I think it passed in 2016, which essentially enabled non-accredited investors to invest in startups. Historically, in the whole tech industry. You've only been able to invest in startups if you're an accredited investor, which means that you need to have a certain income or certain net worth, which really created this um, sort of siloed world of, uh, you know, a normal person couldn't invest in tech companies. So now they can. Um, we're actually opening, reopening our funding to the public um, this this coming week. If, so that that's on WeFunder, wefunder.com slash minds. So you know that's really important to us is to have the community own stake. So it's not that it's not a fully public company, but the equity crowdfunding um, sort of shift has has made it much more accessible. We want, I, we need to be owned, owned by our users. There's no world where the, I, I wouldn't want that to be a real, reality. Um, so I think that's really important. And then additionally, the code is owned by everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody owns their. Their keys, their data, their content, it's, it's really this uh, kind of sovereign self-ownership world that we want to move to.
1: And I'll just qualify for everyone that I didn't know that you were opening up your funding, you're very welcome to, to mention it, but I what I want to talk about more is uh, just this kind of broader ideological push to censor, to hide information, to keep everything. Classified or so many things classified or top secret. Um, You know, you recently drew my attention to this uh, New York Times piece about you know what happened to the uh, Nord Stream Two pipeline explosion, and you know I think the New York Times has a line where they say maybe it's in the best interest of everyone not to know or something of this vein. Wow, really? How could that be true? But but there is this kind of mentality now that sort of emerged in our society and you're, you're obviously you're dead set against this. But but what do you make of this?
0: Yeah, I mean, that that's where a lot of my original philosophy comes from is just this desire for greater access to information, both from the government and from corporations. You know, there's always an excuse to be more secretive that is sort of whether it's talking about national security, or um, you know infrastructural security of the app we can't we can't publish our code because that would be a security risk to our users you know that that's what most of these companies will say and you know you can go ahead and make this security through obscurity argument but time and time again you talk to the best cybersecurity researchers in the world they will they will all say that open source encryption protocols are the most hardened and battle tested and because you, you have that public accountability and you're essentially having all the smartest people in the world audit your code and find the holes. And everyone has every, look at Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin is totally open source. It has, it's never been hacked. It's, you know got more, there's every incentive to hack it, but yet it seems to be one of the most secure encrypted protocols that we've ever seen. And, you know, it's the same with, I mean, Wikipedia works. It's open source. It's not like it's getting hacked. Linux works. You know, exploits get found once in a while, but, you know, they get fixed and the world, the world doesn't end. So we're trying to push that that kind of transparency by default mentality. It's really hard. I mean, when you, when you spend a lot of time building a business, I remember when the day before we first open sourced all our code and you kind of just are nervous and you think oh gosh we've put so much money and time into into building this and we're going to put it out there but you know what people don't realize is that there are licensing models and software licenses that you can use that do protect you but also enable you to um, be transparent so actually the so the software license that we use is called the the general public license version 3 which was created by the Free Software Foundation and it's, that's the same license that Twitter used on their algorithm, AGPL v 3 What it essentially means is that here's the code. You can do whatever you want with it. You can use it. You can uh, commercialize it. But any changes that you make, you have to share with the whole world as well. So you can't just take this code and then create your proprietary app. You have to, you have to pay it forward, essentially, in terms of the transparency. And some people call it a copy left license. Um, or the, the, the content equivalent would be a Creative Commons share-alike, which means, hey, you can take this music that I made. Um, you can remix it into your own music. But when you share the final product, you have to share that with everybody else. So um, it, I thought it was interesting that Twitter picked that license for their, for their algorithm. There are other models where there um, you can do a time delayed release where so we're going to publish our code so it can be audited, but no commercial use can happen for a period of X years. So you basically are, are being transparent, but you're protecting yourself in the business sense. And this is like, most people think open source, they think, Oh, you're just giving it away. And, but, but there's a lot more nuance to it than that. Something just struck
1: me, you know, um, there's a, proxy that many Chinese users use to access the Epoch Times and a lot of other basically sites. Essentially what it does is it allows it's a plug-in for a browser on if you're on the China side of the Great Firewall of China that lets your browser basically use the World Wide Web freely. Okay? Now the way this the way FreeGate works is it mimics, it pretends to be other protocols, right? and when talking with the the guy that runs this um, he says that never in a million years would i make my protocols public why because the CCP would know exactly what we're doing hmm. right and i so i can't so my point and i think i think he has a very strong case here why you know in this in for this for this particular type of use case it probably doesn't work but so so Sorry, but are you suggesting you don't want kind of radical transparency in all cases? Are there are there examples where secrecy or class you know, classified information is acceptable in your mind? Uh, explain this well, to me. Yeah.
0: You know, for something like a browser extension, which is what you said is being used. Well it's
1: it's it's basically it's not a VPN, it's a proxy. But effectively what it does is it allows users free access to the internet in a place where it's, you know Massively censored, right? But the protocol itself, uh, the way the way it works, if the 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 bad guys, so to speak, knew how it would work, it would it would negate its use.
0: Yeah, right? I would need yeah. to dig into sort mm-hmm. of the the specifics, but you know, it would also be possible for traditional content publishers to integrate with Noster or another kind of uh, relay network or di- distributed system that. Where where the content lives in the decentralized web as well, like so. There's sort of different um, strategies. There's different strategies. Well, so this that, is enab- what I'm saying.
1: I'm I'm not saying that there aren't other ways to skin this cat, and there are, and people have tried. Just this one seems to be the most the most effective, and I think the well, the point is that there's a case here, right? Or you know, may I may want to not provide the nuclear codes, for example, to, to the World Wide Web or, you know, yeah, that would be probably an extreme example. Yeah, right? no, no, it's an but, important okay. example. Yeah, so, no, I do think
0: yeah. that there are certainly exceptions for, um, you know, absolutely everything being transparent. That's the paradox between transparency and privacy, because privacy is, you know, a cousin to secrecy mm. in a sense. So um, Obviously, we need privacy. There's no freedom without privacy. If we don't have the ability to converse privately, then we're not free. Um, and, and so, in the same sense that we're not, you know, free to use applications privately, we're, put, you know, arguably not free. But um, I, yeah, I don't know. It, it's possible with with that proxy that there could be some. Open version of it that wouldn't be stoppable, but I, I, I would need to look into the specifics on it. I think that yes, they're, they're, we would push for um, as many systems as are like generally accepted to be useful for society to be transparent as possible. That you know, uh, cocktails for uh, bio warfare and <laughs> nuclear codes can probably you know those should be private.
1: Right. Okay. Well, I'm just trying to understand where your where the limits on transparency are. Right? Well, the thing yeah. with yeah.
0: with this uh, proxy that you're using, I think that, you know, the creator of it, you know, that's his opinion. Mm-hmm. We don't know that. Mm-hmm. We don't know that it would be immediately taken down mm-hmm. if it was published. Mm-hmm. Maybe, um, if it was published, it would be forked by other developers, and they would create more resilient versions that can't be taken down. Mm-hmm. Maybe um, it's riskier for it to um, not be published because if they find out who that individual is and can take him out, then the whole thing is taken out because he was the only one with access to the code in the first place. Mm-hmm. So from you know, if they can politically attack that human, then you know, that's, a, that's a single choke point because mm-hmm. so, part of the benefit of open source is that it's unleashed and so it can't get taken down because it's been widely distributed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting debate though.
1: So but let, let, let's go back to this to the to this just general question, right? Like there so privacy and secrecy are two sides of the same coin, you you suggested. So there's room for secrecy maybe even more than just the nuclear codes and the bio bioweapon cocktails. Where do you
0: where do you set that line? Um you know, certainly for personal communications I you know we believe that it should be all end-to-end encrypted by default we have no desire to have access to people's private conversations it's more of a risk to both us and them to have us able to access those those conversations so you know we we use a end-to-end encrypted protocol for our for our messaging that's one of the scary things about Twitter that they actually have said that encrypted messages are coming in the roadmap but that's something that doesn't get spoken about enough, then that's a Twitter file that I want to see, mm-hmm. is show us the history of DMs being accessed. I mean, think about who you have on there. You have heads of state, you have corporate leaders of the world. Let's see the, um, the history of Twitter admins accessing those messages. The data is there. It's been done. We've seen screenshots of the Twitter admin console where you, where, if, if a Twitter admin goes to your page, they can just look right in your DMs. Right now, they can do that. Mm-hmm. And that Twitter file wasn't shared. Mm-hmm. You know, we also need to know where any of these are. are what's the status of these these programs um, with the uh, w- with these different government task force and the the web portal web portals for them to submit takedown requests to Twitter. You know, we don't know what's happening right now. And it's high likelihood that it is it, that it is still happening. And what I can say is running a social social media app, we have received requests from the government before. On not not often, but on a few occasion we have and we absolutely require a warrant and a subpoena. And and with that, we have built our infrastructure so that when those requests come in that we're not even in a position to share it because if we have access to the dms then we have to share the dms but if we engineer ourselves out of the driver's seat then we can't you know they come and we say we don't have you see what's public on their page that's what we have
1: the counter argument of course which you've heard a million times is well the terrorists get to use these systems so we Government needs access.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, breaking encryption by all of the smartest security researchers in the world makes everyone less safe. It makes the U.S. infrastructure less safe, safe because when you build back doors into primary encryption protocols, I mean, the, the government uses Linux. The government uses, you know, prop, the government uses Signal. We know this from the Twitter files. Signal is an open, you know, the, one of the most popular open source encrypted messenger apps. The, the, the war rooms between Twitter and the government were happening on Signal. That's where they were talking. I have friends in the military who use Signal, and they're all told to use Signal. So, you know, for the NSA and other intelligence agencies to try to break encryption is breaking their own security for conversations that they're encouraging their own personnel to have. So it's not a good idea.
1: Hmm. Interesting. I haven't heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that keeps me up at night is, you know, is the ability to this thing that I call the megaphone. The megaphone is the, the system of all these different you know, government and civil society and media structures working together to create a perceived consensus around issues. Like, for example, the vaccine is safe and effective. That's the one that 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 perhaps we've heard the most often in recent times. It's a very, very powerful mechanism, and the censorship is a piece of it, but not 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 the whole not the whole thing. Jacob mentions this uh, uh, digital Leviathan that's kind of replacing governance system in the U.S. potentially, you know, if it's mm. not somehow stopped. What do you see happening here? Is there any way, and is there any way to stop it?
0: I think it's really alarming that, you know, the information landscape is getting kind of taken over by these, these agencies. We're sort of seeing this as almost like a Mockingbird, Operation Mockingbird 2.0. Where you know historically Operation Mockingbird was where the media was being used as a as a mouthpiece for the government, and so now we're seeing that in the social media age, and citizens are the targets. So domestic terrorists. This you know term domestic terrorists is the new fetish of, of the intelligence agencies, and they seem more uh, more concerned with domestic terrorism from, you know, Joe Citizen sharing their thoughts on social media about the government. And so the the pro freedom community is is now threat number one to our national security. And I just might add that just I have to say this because this has been on my
1: mind. It just means that there's so much more focus on or so much less focus like dramatically less focus on all these really serious,
0: legitimate threats that, that America faces. Right. It would have been nice in the Twitter files to see, you know, a hundred thousand requests for child sexual abuse material, but we don't see that. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's there. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe there. It's there. Maybe I it... hope it's there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so, so, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen here? I mean, based on, based on what you're seeing, and I know because you think about this in a very broad
0: way, it seems. I think the, the genie is out of the bottle. I think they got, they got caught with their pants down. I mean, ultimately, I think that open source decentralized systems are going to take over, just as a matter of almost like physics. It's just, they're more resilient, they protect the users more, and as they become infused with the monetization incentives that the centralized networks have, and we reach feature parity with big tech, there's no reason not to use both, at least. And and this is one of the, the positives about the Twitter deal, is that it used to be big tech, alternative tech. And so you sort of had like Us and Rumble and Parler and you know these kind of alternative social media apps and then you had the kind of legacy Silicon Valley world. And there was this big split. There was no in between. But now one of the top apps, Twitter, is kind of in the middle. Probably even more over on our side. Which f- from a... Uh, power dynamic and sort of competitive uh, perspective when Zuckerberg and uh, Prashai and all of these CEOs are are looking at, what are we going to do next? Look at what Twitter's, their open source, Twitter open source algorithm. Can you believe it? Like, what are we going to do? Are we Would we ever do that? It's in the conversation now. I have been screaming from the rooftops for 12 years about just the, using the word open source. The fact that it's even being discussed on that level. And it seems to actually be taking hold in a certain degree. So I make the analogy a lot to organic food, where like, you know, historically, you know, food was just food and no one really knew the difference between like GMO processed, um, you know, hormone food versus organic labeled local food. But then this whole movement came out and now in the grocery store you have a whole labeled section and uh, organic section and then you have the conventional section. That's what, we, that, that's what I want to see in the app stores. In the app stores you go in and you have sort of a labeling infrastructure where you can see what apps are, are doing what to you. It is like food. I mean, our, our phones are like <laughs> extensions of us. They basically are, they are having a biological impact and they're, you know, with Neuralink and all of these advances, you know, soon they're gonna be in people's eyeballs. We're entering that sort of transhuman reality. Mm. And so we need to be even more cognizant of, you know, nanotechnology, nanobots, you know, in, in vaccines, everything is 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 becoming digitized and it's gonna be interfacing with us on a more intimate level, which makes the urgency to understand the nature of the software that we're injecting into ourselves it's it's that much more critical.
1: Well, right. So you know, as we finish up, this is a whole another realm, right? But you know, as one of the things that strikes me about this transhumanist direction, right, that that at least part of our society seems to be interested in taking, um, you know, inadvertently, there is these fundamental questions of censorship control. Are you do you lose are you losing autonomy are you losing decision making is certain information kept from you I don't know you know profound
0: it's profound questions super profound i mean you know imagine you become paralyzed and you know neuralink or 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 you have some neurodegenerative disease which you know one of these technologies can can help you you know Are you willing to, it's, it's a very different conversation when you have it from a health angle and like a severe medical condition angle versus like a supplementary, uh, human performance level. Because when, you know, it becomes a lot more personal when you think about it from, you know, the, the perspective of diseases that could get you. Mm -hmm. And would I give up some freedom to have this, um, capability restored in my body? Would I risk? Having you know my body infected with some nanobot that could just shut me down at a moment's instant, but I you know temp- I, I'm able to g- regain this function. Um, that's that's what's scary because that is is real. You if if you if you take this nanotech, you are risking that because there's people controlling that software. The same way when you hop into a Tesla, you know if someone hacks Tesla, guess what? A hundred thousand cars could go off the road at once. There could be a a major disaster, um, because you know Tesla's code is is not open and it. But again, they would make the argument similar to the the proxy um, argument that you made that you know they're making that security through obscurity argument, which is is a good debate.
1: Mm-hmm. Well. Um Gosh, I could I could keep talking to you forever here. Um, why don't we just jump to you know the Minds event that's coming up? You know on I, Saturday on the fifteenth. You know coming right up. Um, we'll be there. You're you're going to be there. I'm going to be there. Um, maybe just you know let people know what what they could find there if you happen to be in the Austin area.
0: Yeah. So Austin, Texas, uh, April fifteenth. If you go to festival.minds.com, you can see the whole lineup. But like you know, as in, you you came to the. New York City event that we had at The Beacon uh, last year, where with at MindsFest what we're trying to do is just have debates, civil dialogue with people from across the political cultural spectrum and there's just there's a huge appetite for it. Even though major social networks kind of want to shut down that debate, that really is what people want to see. We, um, and and one, uh, one person who's coming who is historically uh, liberal? Destiny Stephen Bonnell. He's a uh, he's a great YouTube debater, and you know comes comes at things from honestly more of an establishment perspective, but he is willing to have the conversation. You know historically it was uh, liberals who were you know champion free speech at Berkeley. Now it's the the conservatives and the, the Christians who are fighting for free speech with like that all inverted. And so we just like to dig into that. We're gonna be talking about Twitter files. We're gonna be talking about uh, social media censorship. We're gonna be doing lots of live um, debates with the audience. We're gonna be inviting the audience on stage and talking about you know government secrets and probably talking about Nord Stream that you mentioned. And then we're doing music afterwards. We've got um, some blues musicians. Daryl Davis, who um, I mentioned, amazing blues musician, piano player, he was, He played piano with Chuck Berry, you know, famous, legendary rock um, rock musician. In our original roots, back when I was at UVM in Vermont, when minds first kind of glimmered, we would hold these events called Gathering of the Minds, and we would bring all students, um, student government, professors, and have these roundtables. And we actually successfully got the University of Vermont to divest from weapons manufacturers. That was sort of a result of one of the conferences that we that we had because not to go too deep, but you know most universities are in have they have stock portfolios they're invested in all kinds of different companies and so you know that was when I was you know staunchly in students against war and kind of protesting the the iraq war and and all that but um we then blend it with culture, art and music, and because it's just, I think people are exhausted by the culture war. It is exhausting. I know that you probably feel that sometimes, I do. You know, it's fascinating, I love it, but you need to balance it out and just show that people can have a good time together. And and, and, and that's what music does um, and, and historically has done. It's... Um, unfortunately you know we don't have that that kind of spirit of culture and um counterculture that music you know from the 60s really had it doesn't really exist anymore um so i'm hoping that we can bring that back a little bit but in a, but in a bit more of a of a balanced way because you don't want the music to get like overly politicized something just struck me and i'll just mention this as we
1: finish that it almost seems like it's it's facilitating the dialogue. That's the radical thing now.
0: <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. So so
1: I understand what, exactly what you mean when you say more in a balanced way. And the so Bill Ottman. It's such a pleasure to have you on the Thanks show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you all for joining Bill Ottman and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host Yanya Kellick.